today, uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It's uh, right, I think, to say that the most important things you learn about the Lord Jesus, uh, you learn uh, at his death. Of course, death and resurrection are two sides of the same coin. Um, One accomplishes nothing without the other. And of course, uh, the birth of Jesus is important. The teachings of Jesus, they're important. The miracles of Jesus, they're significant. But you will not make right sense. In fact, you might make wrong sense of those things unless you consider them within the context of his death. And today we come to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we read our passage, let me uh, pray once again, and then we'll read uh, our text for today. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us through the truth of Scripture to the living truth, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's hear God's word from Luke 23, beginning in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These words that we've just read answer, I think, one of the most important questions that you could ever ask, and that is no exaggeration. The question is, why did Jesus die on a cross? Why was Jesus crucified? I want to get at the answer to that question this morning by looking at three events that Luke tells us about in this passage. And so I want to look at three events And after we look at those three events, I then want us to look at three groups of people that Luke talks about in this passage. Three events, three people, three groups. Let's begin with the events. The first event is darkness over the land. Now, that's out of the ordinary because as Luke tells us in the beginning of our passage, that it's about the sixth hour. In Roman time, in our time, it's about noon. And so around noon until 3 p.m., the land was shrouded in darkness while Jesus is being crucified. And it's very clear that Luke means this more than merely metaphorically. He leaves it beyond the shadow of a doubt in verse 45 where he tells us that the sun's light failed. So there was some kind of eclipse. Luke has little interest in the physical causation behind uh, this darkness over the land, he is more interested in having us understand 
that during this time of Jesus hanging on the cross, there was this unusual, extraordinary, even eerie darkness over the land. So what? That's the question then. What, what's the significance of this? Why is Luke giving us this bit of detail? Well, in the Old Testament prophets, when the sun's light failed, when darkness came over the land, it was a sign of God's coming judgment. So just listen, take a look at or listen to this one example from Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And this is, this is the Lord speaking about coming in judgment upon his own people. And on that day, Amos 8, 9, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, you read that and think, surely Luke is alluding to this passage, and I think you'd be right to come to that conclusion, because if you keep reading on in Amos, there are very clear parallels between what Amos is saying and what Luke is saying in Luke chapter 23. But interestingly, in Amos 8, God's judgment which darkness is a sign, comes upon God's people. But here in Luke 23, God's judgment falls upon his very own son. I think another passage that we could go to to see darkness in the Old Testament would be um, the book of Exodus. During the time of the Passover, when the, the angel of the Lord came in darkness in the land of Egypt and the firstborn sons of the Israelites were, were spared by the, the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. And of course, Jesus is hanging on the cross of Calvary during Passover season. And so the message Luke sees in the darkness is that God has come in judgment against sin. But it's not judgment upon his people, because the judgment instead is falling upon his son. And so as the true Passover lamb is sacrificed, God's people are being redeemed. God's people are being set free. And this is a reality that Luke has reflected upon before, that what Jesus is actually doing by his death is beginning a new exodus, Delivering his people not merely from a land of bondage, but from lives of bondage. And so that's the first event, darkness over the land. And while that's occurring at the same time, Luke draws our attention for a moment away from the cross to the temple of Jerusalem, where the curtain in the temple is torn in two. And so this is the second event, a torn curtain. Now the, the curtain being referred to here is most likely the the curtain separating the, the holy place within the temple from the holy of holies. And this curtain was, well, it was a big curtain. It was 30 feet wide. If I remember correctly, when we had these new pews put down a few years back, I think they're 14 feet in length. So you stick two of them together and add a couple of feet and you've got the width of the curtain that we're talking about. And it was 60 feet high. So stack four of these on top of each other end to end. And you're getting close to the height of this curtain. It was a big curtain. And, and we're meant to understand that what's happening here, as people say today, it was a God thing. It wasn't as though this curtain was just, you know, falling apart. It was old. 
and uh, it was ready to just come down. No, God rend this curtain in two from top to bottom. And so again, the question is, so what? Why, why is this significant? Why is Luke giving us this bit of detail? Actually, it sounds kind of strange when you think about it. Jesus is being crucified and oh, the curtains are ruined. <laughs> All right, what, what's, what's the significance of this? Why is this here? Well, for starters, because it signifies the deconsecration of the temple in Jerusalem. That true worship would no longer be centered around a building, but around a person, namely around Jesus Christ himself, as he taught us in the Gospels. But more than that, it signifies that that a way has been opened to have direct access with God. Let's to think about that for a few moments. Now, when I, when I say direct access to God, you know, some of us might you know, go on and think, yeah, direct access to God, so what? Of course, I have direct access with God. I talk, I talk to him every day. We're good friends. God loves to hear from me. Why wouldn't I have direct access to God? Many people might say something like that today, but let's just slow down and think about that. Think about it on a human level, simply in terms of a, a human relationship with a person of high ranking and power. We, we don't have direct access to the President of the United States. You, you, know, you, might, you know where he lives. You can, you can go find his house. It's big. It's white. It's a white house. You'd show up one day and try to knock on the door and we'd probably hear about it in the news. I'd be impressed actually if you even made it to the door. See, look, we understand with people like that, we, we don't have direct access, but, but why do we think direct access to God is just a given? Why, why do we think we can come before God and talk to him like it's no big deal? And look, Israel's whole system of worship reinforced the idea that God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be approached casually. And so you have a temple and there's a, there's a courtyard and only some people are allowed to come into the courtyard. And then there's uh, the holy place and only some people are allowed in the holy place. And to, to go into the holy place, you have to go through a ritual of washings and sacrifices. And then, of course, there's the holy of holies where only one person was permitted to go. And only one time a year, the high priest, after a, a detailed ceremony of sacrifices and ritual and cleansings, was the high priest permitted to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And then you have this whole elaborate sacrificial system which reinforced the idea that God is holy and his people are not. And so God provided this sacrificial system to deal with his people's sin. And then you've got these clean, unclean laws. What's all of that about? We often ask ourselves, why, why all of those laws? Well, one of the things is to teach his people, God dwells, a holy God dwells in the midst of an unholy people. How is that going to be a possibility? Clean and the unclean laws are meant to teach God's people about that. So the question underlying all of Israel's worship was this singular question. How does a holy God dwell with an unholy people? 
Turn with me to the book of Hebrews for a moment, to Hebrews chapter 10, to get an answer to that question. And there are several places in Hebrews that deal with this issue, but let's just, let's just take a look at one. In Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So you, you see what Hebrews is saying. There's a lot to unpack there. But do you see that when Jesus' flesh was torn, the curtain was torn, providing access into the holiest of holy places. And I think we need to just try to take in, dear friends, how, how remarkable that really is. Hebrews says that we can come with confidence of all the places that you would go this is not a place that you would have gone with confidence in the old testament into the holy of holies you know if you could go back in time and ask uh, you know hey benji or hey joshua what are you up to today well lots of people are talking about the temple so i think i'm going to make the trip over there and, and check out the holy of holies no you're not going to do that. You're not going to hear that because you tend to stay away from places where you die. It's, it's why when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he went in with bells hanging from his garments so that people could stand outside the curtain and listen in to make sure that the, the bells could be heard lest he be struck down by the Lord in the presence of God. And what we're seeing here is Jesus gives us direct access into the presence of God. The death of Christ puts an end to all of the shadows of the Mosaic Covenant. No more sacrifices. All you have to do is trust in the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No more priests because we have a great high priest who has gone into the presence of God before us making atonement once for all. This goes without saying but you understand there's a reason I'm called a pastor and not a priest. Shepherd. Because we only have one high priest. Only one priest who gives us access to God. And his name is Jesus. And he alone has taken care of our sins. Do you ever consider, do you ever pause and ponder what a remarkable gift it really is that you have access to God. That you can, that you can speak to him. You, know, you can't talk to the president right now, but you can talk to God right now. I think, about, think about that the next time that you, you maybe casually say at the end of your prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. There's nothing casual about that. It's everything. He is the way. He is the entry point. He is the only way in Jesus' name. Jesus tore the curtain. And so we have access to God. And so darkness, Jesus, Jesus died to set us free. Jesus came under the judgment of God to deliver his people. A torn curtain, Jesus gives us access to God. And the third event is a loud cry. And from this we see that Jesus willingly laid down his life. Now let me just say this as an aside before we get into this. You know, one of the 
very common, uh, I guess, objections to the Christian faith that you're hearing today is that what Christians say about Christ's death on the cross is tantamount to cosmic child abuse. Right? Why would a loving father ever subject his son to such suffering and inhumanity? Well, when that objection is made, dear friends, you just need to remember that it's actually saying a lot more about the speaker than they realize. It's saying that they haven't actually read the Gospels for themselves. Because over and over and over and over again, we find Jesus saying, saying things like, no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down willingly. Remember in Luke chapter 9, it was Jesus who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is never in conflict. Father, Son, and Spirit work together in perfect harmony. The Father sending his Son, the Son willingly going and laying down his life, the Spirit upholding and enabling the God-man to offer a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. But don't let anyone tell you that Jesus went to the cross with his arm being twisted behind his back. Jesus went willingly in obedience to his heavenly father for the joy set before him. That's an aside. Let's look at verse 46 here. Calling out with a loud voice, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's two significant things about that cry. First, the words that Jesus uses, they they come from Scripture. They come from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms, from Psalm 31. And so one of the things we we see here is it gives us a little hint that Jesus was, was encouraging and strengthening himself through the way he saw in the book of Psalms his own experience and person being described. We've, we've already seen this if we look at other gospel accounts where before this Jesus has cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalm 22? And now Jesus has made his way to Psalm 31 verse 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And so I think we should say as our Savior first But also as our example, Jesus dies with the word of God upon his lips. Trusting his life into the hands of his heavenly father. Believing by faith that his father would not abandon his soul to the grave. And as those who belong to Jesus, who are united to him because this is true of Jesus we too can entrust our lives into the hands of our Heavenly Father, knowing that He will not abandon us. The second thing worth noting here about this cry, though, did you notice that Jesus cried out with a loud voice? Why is that worth noting? I think because a person, person being crucified did not die by the nails. They, they died by asphyxiation, by prolonged asphyxiation. And so a person being crucified died from no longer being able to breathe. 
And we've already seen Jesus in his physical weakness, and yet here in his final moments, he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So you see what Luke is saying? He's saying Jesus chose the moment. Not the Roman soldiers, not Pontius Pilate, not even the the religious leaders. It is Jesus who knows, as he says, it is finished. And so in his dying words, he commits his life by faith into the hands of his heavenly father. And he bows his head and he dies. And so we need to understand, dear friends, and, and marvel at this fact that Jesus dies not as a victim for whom we should feel some kind of fleeting sentimental pity, but as a king who reigns from the cross and in his death conquers sin and Satan and death. He lays down his life willingly, deliberately, consciously, sovereignly, royally. He entrusts his life into the care of his heavenly father, knowing that his work is ended. And so Jesus bows his head and dies. And now after highlighting these three events, see what Luke does in the next few verses? He, he turns our attention to three different groups of people. And if you pay really close attention as well, you'll notice that Luke works out systematically from the cross. And so who is it that's closest to the cross? It's the execution squad. And Luke tells us about one of the soldiers in this group, the centurion, the leader, I think, of the group. And so without telling us, Luke is telling us what kind of man he was. He was a, he was a public executioner. And the very striking thing is in Luke's gospel, it's the centurion who says, surely this man was innocent. And if we read through Luke 23, we'd also see that this is a climax of statements about Jesus' utter innocence. Everybody, every human who has been called into judgment of Jesus has been forced to recognize that the charges don't stick, that he's not guilty of the charges. There are at least six occasions in this chapter alone where people pronounce Jesus innocent. And now you see it's the man who is responsible for putting, who, for putting Jesus to death who pronounces Jesus to be not guilty. So I don't think you need a great deal of Christian theology to, to understand Luke's message here. Because the question becomes, if, if this man is not dying for his own sins, then for whose sins is he dying? I think that's the question we should be asking as we look at, these, at this verse again and again, again and again and again and again. This man is declared innocent of all charges in this chapter. He, he cannot be dying for his own sins. Then the question becomes, for whose sin is he dying? And my friends, the answer that faith gives is he's dying for my sins. Now, theologically, the, the theological words and their 
important words, and we don't shy away from theology because theology is about knowing God. And you wouldn't be here today if you weren't interested in knowing about God. The theological term for this is penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, Christ pays penalty. Substitutionary, Christ in our place. Atonement, at at one minute. Atonement is how two parties at odds are reconciled. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Now, of course, there's a richness to the atonement that we can look at from different perspectives. But at the heart of it all is this idea. Christ paid the penalty. Christ substituted himself. Christ reconciles us to God. But then Luke moves on from the the execution squad. You see, there is this crowd that's come out from Jerusalem. and And he tells us how they left the crucifixion scene in verse 48. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle... When they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. Now, if you know something about Near Eastern culture, then you you know that this is an extreme display of, of emotion. But that might be all it is. I think that's why Luke tells the story this way. What are they doing? They they returned home. So you see the picture that paint that Luke is painting for us. Here is the Roman centurion gazing upon Jesus at the cross, declaring him innocent. And Luke tells you that he was praising and glorifying God. So who knows what the Lord had done in this man's heart. But the crowd, they beat their breasts with this extreme display of emotion. And then they went home. You know, that's, I think that's exactly the response some people have to to Jesus. They hear about Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and they have this extreme emotional experience. They have maybe even an overwhelming sense of of sorrow and sadness, but they'll feel right as rain tomorrow. Tomorrow morning when they wake up, it'll be back to life as normal because that's all it is, simply a display of Fleeting emotion. It's expressed here, not in a Western way, but in an Eastern way with great physical expression. But you can rest assured that all of these people probably felt like it was just the ordinary day the next day they woke up. Because this event, from their point of view, has no real relevance for their lives. Except the fact for these moments, they're overcome with emotion at the thought of what Jesus had just gone through awful thing that Jesus just experienced. But you remember, let's remember one more time, Jesus has already addressed this crowd of weeping daughters of Jerusalem following Jesus out to Calvary. And what did he say to them? He said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. The problem is not mine. I go deliberately. I go as I've taught my disciples with great intention to lay down my life and to suffer for my people. You see, if all you see here is the sadness of a man tried and condemned and crucified, yes, it it may move you emotionally. But if you don't see him doing this in order to save your very soul, 
then you will feel better tomorrow. But what Jesus is saying is, you're going to feel sorrow for all eternity. See, that's the, that's the horror of it all. The fact that you had the opportunity. The fact that you heard the word of Christ. And you simply went away sorrowful. We read about someone like that in scripture, don't we? Now Luke moves further out because there's one more group we need to think about standing at a distance. And it's a, it's a general group. They were Jesus' acquaintances. It covers all sorts of people who knew Jesus, those who followed him, men and women from Galilee who had been following him. And Luke says something really, I think, really strange about them when you stop and consider it. He says about them, they were standing there at a distance watching all of these things. Isn't that odd? I mean, just put it in contrast to the the group we just covered, displaying great emotion, and now you have this band of followers of Jesus standing at a distance, no word about emotion at all. No word about a single tear shed. Why does Luke put it that way? These are the ones who loved Jesus most. So why is the only thing Luke says about them, they were standing at a distance watching these things? Well, if we keep reading on in Luke's works, I think we find out what Luke is saying. Remember, remember Luke had a big, big story to tell about Jesus. He didn't just write this gospel. He went on to write the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which we might also think about in terms of the book of the Acts of the risen Christ, through and in his church. And part of that great big story was that Jesus had called these people to himself in order that they might be his eyewitnesses. Not not only of his death, but also of his resurrection. And they would be the first ones to experience the blessings of his salvation that he was bringing through his death and resurrection. And so, in a sense... I think Luke is saying, just note this, note this, because these eyewitnesses are soon going to be the very ones telling the world what happened when the Son of God was cursed on the cross by his heavenly Father as he paid for the sins of his people. And and the innocent died for the guilty, the, the good for the bad. And that the judgment of God that was that was our due fell upon him in order what was his by right might become my privilege. And so with these three events, you see, Luke is is telling us that Jesus bore the judgment. Jesus gives us access to God. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And I think here we start to see how God's word is always relevant to our lives and speaks to us because I think most, if not all of us, will fit into one of these three groups of people. We may be in the first category of those, and the New Testament speaks in this kind of language of those who have crucified Christ in our lives. We've we've put him to death. We've put him out. We've done everything we possibly can to keep him as far away as possible. And every action or word we, we seek to repel anyone who would seek to speak to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And inwardly, we're resisting Jesus. We've done everything we could do to crucify Christ in our lives. 
And I think Luke is inserting the centurion here and asking us, have you begun to see what the leader of the execution squad began to see? That he's not dying for his own sins. He's actually laying his life down for the sins of others. Or the crowd. You know, if you're feeling bad for Jesus, don't worry, you'll feel better tomorrow. You'll wake up. Maybe you're feeling sad today as you're thinking about this passage, but in reality, it's not going to make any difference in your life whatsoever. You know, I know people may think that you do the kind of things that Christians do, but it's really not going to make any difference in your life. And your life speaks to that reality if you would but be honest with yourself for a moment. See, my friends, you're not going to be utterly devoted to the Lord Jesus for the rest of your life on the basis of a fleeting emotional experience. Now, not against emotions. It's part of our human nature. But it's got to go deeper than that. If that's where you are, I think the sobering reality is you're with millions. You're, you're with this crowd returning home. But as Jesus warns, you will weep for eternity. You see, that is the sobering reality of this passage, that these people had the opportunity. They had come within the hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had listened to some of his teaching. But the next day after Jesus' crucifixion, it was back to normal. Then the third group, and the group I pray that by God's grace we all belong to. See, watching these things brought by God to understand what Jesus has done. And because we're here, we are going there to tell others about what Jesus Christ has done. See, he's entrusted us as his witnesses with this message that now the risen Christ calls everyone everywhere to repent and to believe upon him. If this is you, dear friend, then by the grace of God, your life will never ever be the same again because from now on, it's all about Jesus. And so the question at the end of today is simply this, which, which are you? As we think about these three groups, someone who has crucified Christ in your life, but coming to see who he is. Someone who has had this emotional response to Jesus, but you actually don't know anything about his salvation in your life. And your life speaks to that reality. Or are you someone who, by the grace of God, has come to believe not just that Jesus died for sinners, but that Jesus died for me, chief among sinners. And now he sends me with others out into the world to be his witnesses, to welcome others in and to believe on this same Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you 
give to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray today that by your grace, you would give us a new or fresh sense of the wonder of his grace to us in the gospel. And bless us today as we come to the Lord's table, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.